we? What are we? Who are we? None of us knows, Major. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. Each of us woke up one moment, and here we were in the darkness. How could that happen? That's the question we asked ourselves. We're gonna go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. Welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul, and I'm Kevin. And I hope you yeah, got that uh, oh, that oh. intro sounded like my Sunday last weekend. Yeah, yeah. It just like, where are we? What's <laughs> going on? <laughs> yeah, uh, I was just going to say. Hopefully, you guys uh, got your time helmets and your pants on, and you grabbed the chicken, and now you're back for for this episode. <laughs> I'm so happy we're past the time helmet episode. <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> Like I, I had fun at the time, but just the concept of a time helmet uh, is really annoying to me sometimes. <laughs> well, I, I, I like I just, I just the look of the helmet still gets me, and uh, but well, we got to talk about Buster Keaton, so that was fine. But yeah, that's it. We were, we're at halfway point in the series. Time helmet. Looking forward now uh, to this uh, to uh, season three, episode fourteen. Five characters in search of an exit. Um, air date was uh, December twelfth, nineteen sixty one. Number one film, uh, Lover Come Back. Uh, I don't know. December twenty second. December twenty second. Does what I said? Yes. I, I messed it up. I probably messed it 12th. up. Twelfth. Twelfth second. Yeah. Whatever. Twenty second. Twenty second. Twelve twenty two sixty one. There we go. A lot of a lot of twos in there. Uh, number one film, Lover Come Back. Don't know what this is, but Elsa shows up again later. So maybe this was like the one time everyone's like, you know what? We're done with Chuck Heston. We need to see some romance. Uh, and then number one song is still The Lion Sleeps Tonight by The Tokens. Uh, the Zamba uh, sleeps tonight by the tokens. Uh, so, um, what this happened on this date on the twenty second? This is actually this is something that's going to be happening more, and it's one of those things that we kind of knew about creeping into the sixties here. Uh, U.S. Army Specialist uh, James T. Davis, twenty five of Livingston, Tennessee, became the first American combat fatality in the Vietnam War, um, and this was before the U.S. officially said that they were involved in the conflict. So that's the start of that. Yeah, so I'm sure, like you said, in the next couple of years of the show, we're going to have more and more news about that coming through. Yeah. Uh, news, like it's breaking news right now. Um, well, it's just it's just <laughs> as much as like, there were, like uh, the, the space race permeates everything. Uh, like at this point in time, obviously, the, the, the main populace of the United States did not know of our involvement and then how, how uh, formative this would be, you know, in terms of just the, what, what would reverberate from it. So, yeah, it's going to be something that's going to be seeping in through probably the rest of the time that we talk about the Twilight Zone during its first run. Yeah. 
I'm I'm curious. Uh, when when did they announce? When did the public really become aware? Well, uh, that I don't know. However, it's funny that you mentioned that. So, um, like I was telling you before we started recording, I kind of was doing some research ahead for um, other episodes. And let's see here. What did I have? Um, one of these is like I think two weeks later. There, uh, they asked Kennedy directly about it, and he denied it, even though the the, the, the U.S. was actually like involved at that point. Um, so it, I don't know exactly when it became public. It's just that the 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 the, the media was aware of it. Um, so yeah. yeah. Well, I'd just be curious because we we've seen a lot of military episodes previously, and I think next week is one as well. It is. Yeah. I'm just curious if uh, some of the military episodes are going to ramp up in later seasons as we become more and more aware of the situation over there. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't mean just, uh, I, 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 you, I think there would probably have been more, there might be something reflective of the Korean war. Um, cause I feel like that was, you know, something that could be looked at versus I know with, uh, the next episode of, uh, was the quality of mercy is inspired yeah. by Serling's time over in the Philippines. Yeah. So, and, uh, the writer of this episode actually, uh, served in the Korean war. So, okay, so there we go. Something. He was over in the Pacific and everything. So, um, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, I'm just curious with uh, more and more of these conflicts popping up, if it's really going to show within the episodes, because we've seen that Sterling pulls a lot from current events. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, yeah. I'm just I, I'm nervous and excited <laughs> to see if there are going to be more military themed episodes. Well, there's one more that I know of, so yeah, <laughs> not, not, yep. to, not, to, not to spoil that, but let's let's get through this one first. Uh, yeah, so yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'll jump into cast and crew here. This episode was directed by Lamont Johnson, who we previously talked about not too long ago on the Shelter episode, and we'll talk about him a lot more in the future as well, as he did six other future Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah, and I believe he did this one in like the next two. Like, it's really weird how he was kind of back to back to back. So we're going to get a lot of Lamont Johnson. So Yeah, cool. So, yeah, go back to the shelter if you want a little bit more detailed profile of his career. Uh, this episode was, the teleplay was written by Rod Serling, but it was based on a short story by Marvin Petal uh, named The Depository. And I guess he was paid, I couldn't back this fact up. It said he was paid $250 for the story. Uh, the guy was a journalist. He wrote for a few magazines. He served in the military. And I guess Serling met him at uh, some sort of protest or some sort of a gathering. And they hit it off. Uh, this is the only thing he's ever had produced, as far as I can tell. And even this short story was never published. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell if it was actually a short story. I read a few accounts that it was a unproduced script. Because when he did meet up with Serling, he actually had a bunch of screenplays and teleplays and stuff with him that he gave to Serling. Serling ended up enjoying pieces and aspects. I guess most of this, because from what he says, there was very little changed in it. Um, but I guess he he enjoyed this story so much that he ended up purchasing the rights for this. So, but not yeah. not really much about Marvin Petal. Uh, the only thing, Petal, I'm, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it. Marvin. The only thing I could really find on <laughs> Marvin, thank you. <laughs> uh, the only thing I could find on him, uh, sadly, was his obituary write up. 
that just kind of had where he went to school. Some of the magazines he wrote for and was his that also time in the military. Credited to Rod Serling, like his obituary was credited to Rod Serling. Uh, <laughs> no, so I actually have a um, little bit what you're saying here. I actually, this is what I was going to bring up uh, later, but since you brought it up, uh, he had met uh, Serling at um, uh, some kind of rally that was going on, and he uh, he approached uh, Serling with a synopsis about four or five pages with the story called the Depository, and wrote it out mostly on speculation and dialogue. Like, so there wasn't a lot of direction in it. And so he told Serling, he was like, listen, I have a story that I think would make a great script for the Twilight Zone. Serling said, well, submit it to Buck Houghton and I'll take a look at it. Because Serling, Serling said, yeah. well, uh, that's some good luck because I have to write 80% of these teleplays yeah. and I'm looking for material. So thank like, you. <laughs> listen, listen, the lady once told me a story about a bunch of astronauts ending up outside of Las Vegas. I bought it from her. It, you know, that went well, so let's take this. No, but certainly he normally didn't take direct submissions. So this was kind of unique that I think because it was a five-page kind of like brief description and with and when we get into what's going on with this, a very bizarre episode, it must have just like just hit him like this is different and I like it. So yeah, normally um, most people are paid about 2000 for a script and he was given $250 and no residuals. <laughs> like, this is this is actually what it, like some people's like in their top 10 favorite episodes of Twilight Zone, it gets played a lot. And this poor guy, you know, didn't get any other credit other than like story credit and then 250 bucks. Yeah. And this is his only produced, uh, script. So it's, it's kind of sad. And it was just sad. I was, I was trying to find anything or any writing from him. There's really nothing online about this man. Um, but Hey, you know, he had a a short story that ended up becoming a twilight zone episode. So that's more (laughs) than I've accomplished in my life. So (laughs) me too. You know, so, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, interesting. Cause this one's a, this, this one feels like it has like the fingerprints of Beaumont all over it, you know? And like a very, this is like, the, this is one of those more out there episodes. So it feels like that's more from, from his, you know, wheelhouse of things. And to find out this from guy, like giving Sterling, like, you know, five pages at a rally, you know? So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Somebody who is basically a journalist, he went to school for journalism, um, wrote for political magazines, uh, wasn't really a uh, fiction writer or anything or a sci-fi writer, mm-hmm. uh, unlike a lot of the writers that Serling had around him during the show. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, Marvin Petal, like, uh, thanks for your contribution. And you know, yeah, you, he yeah, passed away, unfortunately, in uh, 2013. So mm-hmm. not too long ago. With two hundred fifty dollars to his name, he never cashed the check. That's no, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's get into this this massive cast that we have here. Yeah, there's not too much to talk about. Uh, not there's really only two uh, well known actors in this episode. But first off, we have Susan Harrison who plays the ballerina. This was her only Twilight Zone appearance, and she didn't have too much. Uh, too many credits to her name. So that's really all I had written down, unless you have anything. She was in a um, certainly produced uh, uh, Playoffs 90 uh, called Lonely oh, okay. Expectation. So that caught his attention. Uh, so that, again, another one of those connections with Playoffs 90. Yep. Uh, next up, we have William Wyndham, who plays the Major, your main character in this. He was in uh, a, a lot of stuff, but I wrote down Escape from Planet of the Apes just because of the Serling connection. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, she ha- he had a long recurring role on murder. She wrote, uh, looked like his longest running acting gig and, uh, just, just a great character actor that just popped up all over the place. Uh, it probably wouldn't recognize him, but <laughs> you go through his filmography and there's, there's 200 plus 
uh, titles to his name, I think. Well, and maybe because he was wearing like a military outfit, he kept reminding me of the other lead for My Dream of Genie, like the actual, like. The oh, yeah. Lead. Yeah. The. And, uh, and the I, captain that he always reports to or the, whoever, the one that owns the genie, you know, like I like, so I, maybe I'm wrong, but I forget that actor's name, but I just, I kept thinking that I was like, I know this guy. I didn't know this guy. Uh, he was an episode of the original star Trek uh, series, the doom machine. I just wanted to say doom machine. So there you so go. That's the name of my metal band. There you go. The doom machine. <laughs> uh, next up we have Murray Matheson who plays the clown. This was his only Twilight Zone episode, although he did appear in the Kick the Can segment in the Twilight Zone movie, mm-hmm. and he was also in one episode of Rod Serling's Night Gallery. Yeah, and I put in my notes here, forgive me, I wrote, look at his IMDb photo, so I forget what that means, so I'm going to look at it again here just to verify. Um, so, uh, let's see here. Yeah, oh, he's got his eyes closed. <laughs> yeah, that's why. They picked a shot of him blinking. <laughs> I didn't even notice that last time I was on here. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and here's There's so many good pictures of him. <laughs> yes. If you scroll through the rest of them, they, the main one is him blinking. That's fantastic. Um, I love it. I, just, I, I love IMDb sometimes. <laughs> I do too. Um, this is another, based on this guy's performance, I was like, I have to know this guy from something. Cause very, we'll, we'll talk about it. Like, you know, this would get into the episode proper, but awesome. And I was like, this guy had to do MVP. something. Yeah. And I have nothing much else that I know him from. And that's weird because electric, you know, he had a really, really cool performance in this episode. Yep. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't want to speak too much to it. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have Kelton Garwood who plays the tramp. This was his only twilight zone appearance and I couldn't really find anything else I was familiar with. I there. thought this was, I thought this was a young John Kerry. <laughs> was the tra- <laughs> <laughs> He has, he had definitely had the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did. He did a lot of TV Western work surprise, you know? So there we go. Yeah. I think this was the guy, um, uh, in his, uh, in some of his trivia, yeah, he he took writing and fast drawing lessons so that he could work in westerns. Hmm. So he uh, he appeared on Gunsmoke a lot. I think that was his uh, one big role. And uh, yeah, he actually went as far as to take some classes so he could actually be uh, legitimate on that show. Nice. Yeah, and fast drawing, as in the gun, not just fast <laughs> sketching. He took some, uh, he took some classes of learning how to be a hobo. Um, like he learned how to do a bindle and stick and then also how to read the secret hobo code. That was a long, quit his job, words. sold his house just yeah. so he could figure out, uh, how to play this character. <laughs> committed, really committed. Yeah. He, he, he uh, got more money doing that than the poor guy that wrote this episode. So yeah. All right. That's not a true fact. I, <laughs> I don't yep. know. I just made that up. I like to think that the hobo got paid more than, than Mr. Marvin Petal. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I wasn't too far off. So I guess he worked another piece of trivia. He worked so infrequently on uh, Gunsmoke during that time he was on Gunsmoke. He began uh, working at the post office around oh, his house. OK, I was, so, I was really hoping he was working on the railroad in the meantime. I was really hoping you'd tell me that he was just riding the rails between Gunsmoke episodes. Um, there's some really terrible people that put trivia up on IMDb. <laughs> Like, why is that important to put on his IMDb? Like, he was working so infrequently that he took a job at a post office. Like, perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Like, I'm so glad you put that about his career uh, on IMDb. But <laughs> whatever. Uh, well, like we learned last week about, you know, poor Rolo and his back problems being like that would have kept him from working. And then he shot himself. You know, like, that's great. Great trivia. IMDb. So, yeah. yeah. People have it out for these actors. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, um. yeah 
Uh, we have Clark Ellen, who plays the bagpiper. This is his only Twilight Zone appearance, and the the guy only had like four credits to his name, so really not much there. But did you look I at figured. his trivia though? This guy has crazy trivia. Uh, like just like I don't know if it was his fan club, his family, or himself that submitted this stuff. Uh, he wasn't an episode of Peter Gunn, and I've been on a big spy kick recently, so that's cool. Yeah, so he only had four acting credits. Two of them were as a guitarist, and I want to point out one of them was Bagpiper, so I don't know what the third, the fourth one was. Oh, uh, he actually operated the El Cid Flamingo Club. Yeah. Uh, back to that movie. So Look at that. Yeah, um, so he that, that's one of the bits of trivia here is that he was uh, shot in a robbery attempt in 72 at that nightclub. He had nearly died from the wound. His recovery, which took nearly a year, surprised even his doctors. That's one of the bits of trivia here. And then the other one here, this is this is the best one. <laughs> Did um, the gunshot prohib- um, prohibit him from getting roles? <laughs> yeah, that's why, you know. Um, now, Clark Allen was also a fine artist and uh, exhibited in the Los Angeles area. His paintings were in the mid-century modern abstract and Latin modern style, modernist style. His favorite subjects were portraits, modernist figures, and colorful flamenco dancers, uh, which were all skillfully executed. Actor Vincent Price was an avid collector of his work. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And also passable Scottish accent. Like, that's the, there you go. Um, yeah, passable. <laughs> but I like that this guy, like, he he was just like, he, you know, he was like the Dosekis guy, kinda, you know, but like, but not really known for acting, but more for being an artist and recovering from a gunshot. But he was just, yeah. he, he was just an attractive guy. So I guess he did a lot of like modeling stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Nightclub, flamenco, uh, uh, painter like yeah. this this dude this is my hero <laughs> love this guy um all right and the two more quick ones we have carol hill who plays the woman only twilight zone appearance mm-hmm. uh and then we have mona houghton which i assume is related to buck houghton yeah it's his as daughter. the little yeah. girl only twilight zone so she actually has four writing credits like for like films and things and then she also has crew credits uh, on uh, godfather 2 and the conversation so she I was, saw that. Yeah. So like she, you know, like did some work, you know, like, and that's, that's pretty cool. And then uh, we'll talk about her performance at the end. Uh, nothing like not a crazy story, but just a nice little uh, Buck Houghton aside about it. So yeah, we'll talk about when we get there. Yeah. Uh, did you mention conversation? You said Godfather too. Yeah. And the conversation, but yeah, yeah I, I love the conversation. It's a fantastic movie. Um, yeah, she was administrative assistant. So I don't, I don't even know what that what you do is that, but yeah, I don't know. Just, uh, that's cool. Yeah. You, you, you order people not to make eye contact with Gene Hackman. I don't know what, what that means. I don't know. Like, <laughs> More than likely. Uh, don't look at Popeye. Uh, <laughs> French connection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. All right. So let's let uh, Rod take it away and we'll talk about this highly complex episode. Clown. Hobo. Ballet dancer. Bagpiper and an army major, a collection of question marks, five improbable entities stuck together into a pit of darkness. No logic, no reason, no explanation, just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. In a moment, we'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the whats, and the wheres. We will not end the nightmare, we'll only explain it, because this, is the Twilight Zone. Yeah, uh, interesting intro by him, and I like his statement of, we will not end the nightmare, only explain it. Very ominous. Yeah. Um, this is this 
I don't want to tip my hat how I feel about the episode, but I love this setup. This was one of the most compelling setups we've had so far for, in in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, we've had so far in the series. I was so on board by just the, the diversity of the characters within this episode that I was, I was on board from the first two minutes. Yeah, and this is your first time seeing this, right? Like, cause I know for me, yeah, was I was going to ask, I know you said you have seen this one before. Um, Something rang a bell at the end, but it may have just been the snow-covered Christmas scene. Maybe I was just thinking about the Christmas episode again. I thought I had seen this one previously, and I had not. Um, but, yeah, like, this was, uh, it was, like, not, I guess, I am mean, what's at my hat. Like, this was a nice, refreshing, like, showing again, like, what the Twilight Zone is, like, capable of. And I just, I, yeah, I was all in like the whole setup and just the, the minimalism of it and just the extreme differences in the characters. Yeah. It's, it's, it's still very ahead of its time, I think. So, yeah. And the, the runtime just flies by on this because there was a point in the episode. I'm like, I don't, I gotta be almost like a, only a third of the way through the episode. And I looked and I had two minutes left <laughs> in the episode. I was like, where did this time go? Cause it, this, this episode, I mean, five characters in search of an exit. You have five characters trapped in a windowless metal cylinder, cylindrical room, and they're trying to find a way out and that's it. Yeah. So there's no, I mean, outside of the twist, there are no, uh, nothing outside of this one location. And uh, we've had episodes that have primarily uh, taken place within one uh, little area, but this this is the most claustrophobic episode so far on the Twilight Zone, <laughs> and it's it's amazing. Hats off to Lamont Johnson. Um, I, I don't I don't know how you tell the story visually and may, uh, keep it compelling and interesting to look at, but he does it with flying colors. Yeah. I mean, and part of it too is like they talked about how they had to light this because it was this, uh, the actual set was, um, this like aluminum or whatever they were using. And it was really hard to light directly. So they had to use a lot of indirect light to get everything going. So it gave it a very, a very weird feel, um, which is uh, helped the episode. And then, you know, the actual set itself was built with the ability to be tilted. So from an acting standpoint, that has to be uh, unique, to know that, you know, your perspective's changing while the camera isn't necessarily changing, you know? So, um, it's, it's hard to get into the story of this episode because it isn't, it's more character discussion than it is like plot. I, yeah. I don't know. It's a very, it's a, it's a hard one to kind of be like, and then this happened and this happened. Cause if you do that, yeah. you're done with the story in three seconds. Yeah. We'll kind of go through and just, uh, it just hit some major points mm-hmm. in it. Yeah, like I said, it's it's gonna be really hard to do what we usually do, going uh, scene by scene <laughs> through here. And then the major but, walked in a circle, and then he walked in a yeah. circle some more. <laughs> well, no, because there's some logistical stuff that yeah. I really enjoy in this episode. Um, that it, it, it's it's like when you watch a slasher film, and you get mad at characters for making dumb decisions, but then you watch a good slasher. And they call out that dumb decision before you can call them out. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's those certain things. This one, every idea you have to escape, as soon as you start thinking about it, it's like, well, obviously that's not going to work. Try this. And then they're like, yeah, we should try that. <laughs> and it, it it makes so much sense as you watch it. And they call everything out right exactly when I was thinking about it. So it's, it's awesome. So, yeah, you wake up, you have the major, um, doesn't know who he is. 
really outside of the fact that he knows he's a major. Um, he wakes up in this cylindrical room and he's feeling his way around trying to figure out what's going on. And he comes across a clown. Yeah. And, um, he, he's asking him, he's just like, who are you? Who am I? What are we doing here? Is, is this a circus? Is there a circus? And, uh, the clown basically tells him there's no logic here. There's no circus. So I can't be a clown and there's no war. So you can't be a major yeah. and that kind of stuff. And he said, why don't you talk to the rest of us? And you turn and, uh, I love the way they introduce the clown <laughs> and the rest of the characters in this. Well, considering that you realize that the, the actual floor space isn't very big and he, he finds the clown like off to the side and then suddenly, and without warning, you hear bagpiping music and you have the ballerina, <laughs> you know, like doing a dance and the hobo kind of shuffling behind her and the bagpiper walking and like a line. It's like, where were they this entire time? <laughs> like it was very, it's very <laughs> jarring and it's, it's funny like just thinking about it, but it's like, you know, with the major, you know, not knowing what's going on and, and just trying to figure out the world around them. Like the idea that, the, that these didn't, these, these people didn't exist on his radar until right then kind of makes sense. Yeah. And, and visually it's a great way to introduce it. Cause what, what are you just going to drop five people in on you? Yeah. This way you can kind of introduce them one by one and give them identities of their own. Um, but out of all the instruments to be stuck in a room <laughs> with, like I love bagpipe music, but man, there are scenes when he starts to play that thing. It sounds like a, uh, a straight up nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> like i was gonna say the only other thing i could think of would be a banjo but uh, i i still think i don't know I, what would be a more annoying instrument than a bagpipe maybe an accordion if it's yeah, not I'm done not, well watch your step i'm sitting next to my banjo right now i know I'll you have a banjo that that's why i was afraid to do the hot banjo take there because um, you know. bad violin players uh <laughs> those are really rough what if i love violin playing a recorder like the little plastic oh thing god yeah no, no. <laughs> <laughs> i i would have taken the uh no not to spoil it, i would have taken that sword and uh <laughs> and killed myself if there was somebody playing a recorder in there oh <laughs> well, yeah so i guess there are some more annoying instruments but yeah bagpipe that's a that's a bold choice you know mouth so. harp mouth harp yeah <laughs> <laughs> i guess that's kind of quiet yeah, so you could probably yeah. you could probably zone that out yeah, all you'd hear is that do like they're real tidy. Like that'd be, yeah, they'd be terrible. Um, yeah, I don't know what else you want to like. A slide uh, whistle. A slide whistle. Um, just a tambourine by itself. Like I think that would be also kind of terrible. An off off rhythm tambourine, tambourine player. player. <laughs> that would be me. And they're like, Paul, play. I'm like, I can't do it. They're like, just try. They're like, no, 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 no. We're just you playing like. And the ballerina dancing around you. It'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That would that would be perfect. That's a that's my, that's my dream actually. So I like it. Uh, what about a zither? We can get some of uh some zither music in there to call back to uh, uh what's his face? Um oh what's his name? The guy that I hated from the first season. Um the the the, the guy with the, the the angel. What was his name? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> he loves zither music. Um yeah, put me on the spot. Yeah, okay. I don't even remember like it's Mr. Mr. Beavis. No, that's not Mr. Beavis. That was uh, was yeah, it was Mr. Beavis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Beavis is zither music. There you go. I don't. I wouldn't want zither music in there, and I would not want Mr. Beavis in this room because he would find a way to screw it up. So there you go. Yeah, I still think the recorder is the worst, but <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> so yeah, he he's he freaks out for a while. What and about a really cheap harmonica? How do you feel about that? 
uh, like a plastic, the plastic harmonica. harmonica. <laughs> That's pretty terrible. Yeah, too. Right. Sorry. Though any instrument can be terrible if the person playing it is what, terrible. What about a comb with some wax paper over it? How do you feel about that as an instrument? Or just a saw? <laughs> Yes. Bitch playing the song. Yeah, all right, we got to yeah. get past this. 15 characters in search of an exit that all play bad instruments is the, the next episode that we're going to cover. Oh, so, man, yeah. I, I want to shoot that. That'd be a, that would be an amazing short film. Yeah. Um, yeah, so basically all of those other characters have resigned to realizing that there's no way out of this room. Uh, they have no knowledge of what beca- what came before for them, what's coming after, who they are. They're just in this room, and they've just kind of given up on trying to escape. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's when you get to like the the Serling intro, where he's looking down at them. And it's a really cool intro uh, for his yeah. introduction, um, because like when they look up, they just see like a like a black spot in the in, in the distance. Like and and but Serling's there, uh, judging all of them and telling us that this is a nightmare that you know we're gonna we're gonna figure it out soon. And it's it's a really good Serling intro. Yeah. So the major's walking around knocking on the walls and uh, the clown, uh, who was it? Murray Matheson does Mm -hmm. such a great job. He is sarcastic. He is kind of a dick, to be honest, (laughs) but he's speaking truths. Yes. And uh, you get the idea that all of these characters have gone through what the major is going through. And that they've all tried to find a way out. They've all panicked. They've all tried to figure out what's going on. They've just resigned to their fate of being stuck in here. So he's being very pessimistic. But his character is so much fun in this. And all of his deliveries are spot on. Yeah, there's a bit whenever uh, the major's pounding on the side. And the clown starts singing along with it. And then the major just stares at him and stops. And then he just kind of, and then the clown trails off. And then the major keeps pounding again. And the clown starts singing along with it again. I just, it's, it, it's a, it's a small moment, but it made me laugh. Like just, I love, I love that whole thing of like desperation, but someone's just, you know, egging you on by singing along to your coordinated tapping against a wall. Yeah. Um, but they, they go through the possibilities that maybe they're dead. They're in limbo. Mm-hmm. It's a dream. It's a nightmare. It could, it could be any of these things, but nobody actually knows. Yeah. Well, cause the ballerina, she's like, well, maybe we're on a spaceship. And then, um, the, the, what was it? The hobo says that we're in limbo. So hobo limbo. Um, and then the bagpiper was like, maybe we're parts of a dream. And, you know, just, you could take that sentence and just run with it on, on the surface. All three of these things pretty much are elements from other twilight zone episodes. And, yeah, so uh, it's it's kind of given you as the as the viewer, yeah, seeing as you've probably watched the episodes that have come before this, um, you have these preconceived notions of what this twist could be, and you're trying to guess along with the characters in this. Yeah, and it, it's such a it's such a fun idea. So immediately after that, his idea is like we have to find a way to get out of here, and. This is also really fun watching along with this episode because you start coming up with ideas. So immediately he starts, uh, he's asking like, somebody has to know we're here. Somebody has to, has to feed us. Like who's been feeding you? And they tell him that there's no food or water. And they ask him like, do you feel anything? Do you feel hot? Do you feel cold? Do you feel hungry? Like we just don't get hungry in here. We don't need it. So nobody feeds us. So first off, there's that problem yeah. uh, taken care of. So he starts shouting. He starts pounding. He's trying to find like a button or a lever on the wall. 
Um, he even goes as far as to take his shoe off and start pounding on the wall, trying to make it louder and everything. And uh, one of the characters says, this is the universe. This is all there is. Maybe that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. And as this is happening, a loud bell toll starts happening. And it's shaking the room. It it's made it makes us believe that it's the loudest sound you've ever heard in your life. Yeah, and they all they all tumble um, like it, the second time it, it sounds, and uh, yeah, so that adds further you know not complication but uh, um, texture to the situation because it's like not only you know do they you know does anybody know that they're there there is something out there making that loud noise you know so that is very compelling. Yeah, and there's a there's the great scene in there. This is what really uh, made. I, I wrote down bagpipe sounds nightmarish because the tramp asked the ballerina to dance and mm-hmm. the bagpiper to play some music. And like I said, I love I love bagpipe music. I, I I love Scottish music and everything. But when you fire a bagpipe up, when you're filling it up, and it's making that just off key. <laughs> Uh, sound, it sounds like a nightmare. And it, that's why I was like, the one thing to be stuck in this room with, it had to have been a bagpipe. Well, I like it because the, the, the clown's like, well, the major hasn't seen you dance. And then you hear the, you know, the bag of cats and the ballerina starts dancing. And then the major's like, the major doesn't want to watch you dance. It was just like, I, you know, he just kind of has that moment of like, what do you, what's wrong with all of you? And he's yeah, just, just like, this is not the time oh, no. nor the place for this. Uh, so he comes up with the idea that he's going to go through the wall and they're like, what are you going to do with that with? He brings out the sword that I mentioned earlier and he goes to run through the wall with it and ends up breaking the sword on the wall. Yeah. That kind of made me laugh too. Cause it was like, there was, there was no uh, hesitation. It was like, like against the wall broken. Like there was not even yep. that first, <laughs> that first attempt of like, maybe there's hope. It's like, nope into like <laughs> immediately, you know? So it's like yeah, it's, it's like, like when you get that plastic fork and you're at a, like a fast food restaurant and you just it immediately it break just the sport. melts and bends. Yeah, yeah and you're like, or oh, use a spork against really hot food <laughs> and it just gets all soft and just bends and that's you it. can't do anything with it. Yeah, that's kind of what happened there. So I I felt for him. It was just immediate breakage and that was it. So yeah, um, yeah. there's some great lines here from uh, uh, Susan Harrison who plays the ballerina, just talking about uh, that they're in a dungeon and maybe there's a lot of these mm-hmm. like and that they're the unloved and they're just uh they're forgotten about and all this and um we'll, we'll talk about interpretations uh of this episode when we get to the end I, but this line uh really uh gave me some thoughts about this episode so yeah great for somebody who didn't have a huge acting career uh she she really nailed it in this episode oh absolutely yeah and then uh then the major says he knows where they are that we're all in hell uh, with bagpipes and then, um, you know, and then, then, <laughs> then it cuts to commercial, you know, <laughs> like immediately. So they're all kind of like, you know, maybe we are in hell. Um, and I like that when they come back, uh, the major still trying to figure out what's going on. And I like his line of it's metal. I think it's like, I'm pretty sure it's metal. I think we figured out that the walls are metal by this point, but I, I like that his, his realization of that cause he's still searching for an imperfection yeah. or something. And you can see, uh, with all the other characters, they're, uh, they feel bad for him. Like the ballerina is like, well, at least he's trying. And the clown's like, yeah, he's still trying. (laughs) He's just sitting there still knocking on the metal walls. Um, so yeah, the clown jokingly says something like, Oh, maybe we should try some acrobatics and throw somebody right over the top. And 
it was funny because right about that time I was like, they should just make like a human pyramid and try and climb up to the top. Like they have a lot of people in there. And the next thing they do, uh, the major tries to convince everyone that we should stand on each other's shoulders and the ballerina can climb up and climb over the edge. Mm-hmm. But so, I, I like that the clowns, like he's like, you know, we may not be hungry or thirsty, but pain's quite a real thing. So he presents yeah. the notion of like, I don't want to do this because that will hurt. Like, yeah. and, and he goes and I, sits down. Like things are bad, but they're going to be worse if I fall 20 feet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he needs some convincing. So eventually uh, they end up convincing him to do it. And the next shot, you see the four of them stacked up, which I would, <laughs> I really want to see how that happened is that looks impossible to get three people doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I assume that's obviously where they uh, tilted the set. Yeah. So that we're able to do this, but it looks good. Like, uh, honestly, the uh, actors showing uh, each of them struggling as they're trying to hold each other up. It looks good. It looks like they're actually uh, going through some pain to do it. Yeah. And there were stakes, you know, so you, you like as, as as improbable as that happening in terms of like that much weight being stacked you know like you you know that that's not likely but they did a really good job for for the conceit of what's going on in the episode at this point like if you're not already in on this then that you know that's not going to convince you otherwise but i thought it worked yeah i was i was really pulling for him at this point i was really invested in this um so you get the four of them stacked up and the ballerina climbs up and she gets all the way to the top and she's a little bit too short um so they're they're trying to stretch to get that extra couple inches and the bell tolls so they all fall and uh, the ballerina ends up pulling something in her leg, so she can't attempt it again. But they were that close that it fuels the major on to try again. So he comes up with the idea. He grabs his sword, and he's like, "If the three of or the four of us can stack up, I can climb to the top and throw my sword with a rope over the top and pull myself up." Um, so everyone's like, "Well." It's a great idea. We don't have rope. So they decide they're going to make it out of clothes. They end up pulling a piece off the clown's clothing. Um, yeah, he has and, piping all over his uh, uh, pants. And I like that as soon as he gets it all unraveled, he starts jumping rope with it. Like I did just something, yeah. It's like one of those kind of just like, here you go. Like, I, I don't know why. It's, 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 it's yeah. a tiny little character moment, but yeah. it's something that a clown would do. Yeah. Like, it was, it's perfect. Um, so, yeah, they stack up. The three of them stack up. The major climbs. Uh, throws his sword over, ends up sticking. He's able to climb up, reaches the ledge, falls over, falls into snow. And you don't see him for a few minutes, so you're not quite sure what happens to him. Uh, they're all wondering if he's going to come back and save them or not. Um, and that's when we get to the twist. Well, and I like that um, the clown's like, he may be back, but he won't be back to get us. Meaning, you know, like if he does return, it's because something happened, you know, and he's going to be back with us. Yeah, um, yeah. So... Um, I, I did like that the sound of him falling into the snow was the same sound that every cartoon character makes falling and hitting the ground. It was that very <laughs> same, whatever that, that stock noise is for falling and hitting something. And I'm like, that's not how snow sounds, but, but yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, this is when you get the twist that, um, you find out that they're part of a charity doll drive, like a Salvation Army, like bucket that's just, just for dolls, um, uh, in the wintertime, like around the holidays, and the bell that you're hearing is like the lady working, you know, the donation area ringing a bell. And a little girl comes over and sees this one doll who is the major outside. And she's like, oh, this has been lying beside this place. She's like, it's okay. Go ahead and put him back in there. And she's like, there's not a lot here. And it's like, well, it's still early. We'll get more. And 
yeah, like that is like a a very savage ending to this. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, and you get you get the shots of. Uh, I thought they were the char- the actors with makeup making them look like dolls, but apparently they made casts of each of the character or the actors' faces, mm-hmm. and put them on mannequins and made life-size dolls of each character or each actor and put them in that set. Yeah. And it is, it is creepy. It's just a little bit off from each person. And it's, it's close enough that it just looks like makeup on the front of people's faces. But then you can see like the clown's legs are kind of bent inward. So you can tell it's not actually his body. Just everything is just that much off that it's really upsetting. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you're right. The faces were life cast to do that effect. Um, and then um, at the end, as the camera's panning over the ballerina, you see like off cam, like off the side of the camera, like her arm moved just a little bit, and then it shows her face as the doll's face, the full size doll's face with tears coming out of her eyes. And it's um, <laughs> that you know, if I was a younger person and not realizing what was going on, that would probably screwed me up for a while. Like, <laughs> so yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it was, um, a humdinger right there. That was, uh, was, a uh, like, like Rod Serling said, we're not going to get people out of here, but we're going to explain the nightmare. And they did, you know? So, um, that, that, that's the twilight zone. I think we expected from every single episode before we started doing this podcast, but it's, you know, <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is that, this is that sledgehammer ending that I just loved it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, so I had a lot of uh, I had a lot of thoughts as I was watching this. I I really took this as, and I'm sure that's what he was really going for. I mean, anyone that works creatively, you come up with these ideas, and it takes you sometimes so long to connect the dots to make these characters come alive. When you're writing something, you're filming something, uh, or even writing a song, you have all these pieces that you're trying to make sense of in your mind. And you're trying to get them out. And I really took this as like a visual interpretation of uh, the creative process or just imagination in general and having these ideas in your head and what it takes to put them out and make them real into the world. And uh, but the toy twists at the end kind of takes everything that I was thinking and flips it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So that's that's why I dropped imagination in there, because it's it's kind of turns it from creativity to just straight up imagination. So it's relatable for everybody. Yeah. And if you go back and, and, and you, you mentioned some of the ballerinas dialogue, she's the one character that's speaking like the absolute truth of everything going on the entire time. Like maybe we are the unloved. Maybe there are other dungeons like this. Like you just, everything she's saying is actually what is happening. And it's, um, it's bizarre because it's like, she seems the one that's like not, she's not aloof, but she's also the saddest one of all of them during the entire conversation. And, and the point when the major is scrambling around trying to find the way out, uh, the rest of the people are kind of annoyed with them. And she's like, well, at least he's trying, you know? So it's like, there's, there is a sadness there. And a lot of her dialogue is really spot on, uh, in a wonderful way that is not apparent until you get to the end of the episode. Yeah. And I, I love, what that bell is, what, what the bell is tolling. Yeah. I love that when you get the reveal. And that the, the, um, the spot up in the sky is actually a street lamp. Like that's just, uh, it's a very, you know, you don't know what it is until you see, you know, you see the outside of what's going on, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, yeah really cool. But yeah, the, the title of this episode kind of corroborates like what I, uh, 
was saying about um, like the writing process or just the creative process in general. Uh, he he took this title from Luigi Pirandello's play Six Characters in Search of an Author from 1921, and it's basically a family of six people who keep interrupting a play rehearsal by Pirandello, and the people that keep interrupting his play are claiming to be his unfinished characters from another play that he hasn't finished. <laughs> so in order for him to finish rehearsing the play that he is like currently doing, he has to go back and finish that play so he can get those characters out of his way. That's funny. Yeah. So the fact that like, uh, uh that Serling took that, obviously this struck a chord with him being a writer and getting it from another, a person who isn't necessarily like a, a fiction writer or anything like this was obviously something that spoke to him and with how much he was having to push out for the show. Um, it, there had to have been a lot of characters floating around in his mind that he didn't know what to do with, That he had pieces yeah. of episodes that are probably just in his head that he just didn't know what to do with that were just trapped there that, uh, eventually you would hope that he got out in future episodes and everything, but you could see how this would definitely speak to him and why he picked up this episode. Yeah. And, uh, you're right. So I, I that's, that, that's all very true. It's a very, it's a very meta type of thing too, before it, you know, became a thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I feel like he pulled it off. Like uh, the play that's referenced the, uh, six, um, Oh my God, I lost the title six of it. The six characters in search of an author. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's very meta mm -hmm. and 1921. That's a crazy idea for a play. I yeah. mean, that's, that's way ahead of its time. That's awesome. Um, but it, it it's kind of goofy at the same time. I feel like Serling gets that same point across without having it come across as, uh, as bizarre or anything mm -hmm. like you, you can, you can take it as the writing process and the creative process and that these are figments of anyone's imagination, just waiting to be put to paper or put to film or whatever, or even just played with as toys, uh, imagination, just getting these characters out and having adventures with these dolls or whatever. Um, or you can just take it as what you see on the screen. So I think it works better than what Pirandello was doing with that play. Yeah, no, and, and it's a little, the, little bit more accessible, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But the, it's like it's one of those things that, like, um, you you think about the nature of of the character, about how they they didn't have an idea of 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 who they were until you know they're they're talking amongst themselves and they just, they can only identify by you know by their exterior, and the, the, there's a whole notion there of any story. Uh, unless you make a point of going back and explaining where things came from, the, the characters, like the, the light comes on the moment, the first time you see them. And this literally happens in this episode. And like, if you go back and watch it again, whenever you see the major kind of hunched over his right hand is almost in like that, um, GI Joe Ken like cup, <laughs> cup grip, you yeah. know, like, and he, and he, and he kind of wakes up and he moves his wrist and he just, and he shakes his hand and then gets up. And it's like this weird, like, you know, and then, and, and then there's life, you know, and that's a very, that's something yeah. that we don't think about storytelling that, you know, the, the, the moment we first see them is the moment they first exist. And that's not just this, but it's like, you know, anything that you, you know, encounter. Um, but they, they openly discuss it because the clown is like, yeah, I'm a clown, but I don't know anything about being a clown. 
Like, yeah. and, and it was weird that, no. you know, he had a, he had a pretty good working knowledge of physics though, but I don't know. About the <laughs> thing, thing. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's whatever. But yeah, it's, it's just weird to think about that. Like you watch movies all the time. It's like those characters that you, uh, identify with that you feel for and all that, like they exist only within that hour and a half mm-hmm. for the most part, unless it, obviously, unless it's like based on a real person or something, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, the, it's it's just a, it's a pretty interesting concept for especially for a 25 minute episode in 1961. Yeah, and I mean this even kind of goes back to that um what was it a world of his own with uh that Keenan Wen having you know the ability to talk characters into existence through his uh, teletype. Uh, yeah. It's it, but that was a little different take, but it was still the idea of just like you know, the the um the the nature of narrative and the nature of characters and and that one having the meta ending of him you know getting rid of Rod like because Rod was there and you know, <laughs> like he directly addresses him you know it's like there's that playful notion of that and and I and I would imagine if you spend all day writing stories the actual um the idea of what a story is probably starts to morph and distort in your head. And these are the things that you have you have to consider, you know, while trying to get from A to B, you know. So, yeah, very, well, I, you know, I know you've you know. done some writing and stuff. I've done some uh, screenplay writing and everything. Those characters feel real as you're working on that stuff. Yeah. You know, like you give them uh, whether or not you give them backstory and that thing, like you have these characters built in your mind and stuff. And sometimes when you spend countless nights sitting around thinking about these fictional characters that you've created, they feel real by the time you end up finishing it. So like I can totally see, and uh, obviously Rod Serling is a much more prolific writer or, uh, you know, anything than I am. Um, So I can only imagine how much time he had thinking about these kind of concepts just with, uh, so uh, how many teleplays and short stories and everything that he had written throughout his career. Like it, I'm sure some weird thoughts pop into your head occasionally like this. Yeah. So I, like I said, this, I'm even surprised this came from somebody else. Um, that wasn't a more prolific writer, not to say, not to diminish, um, uh, Marvin Petal's career or anything, but like, like you mentioned, um, Charles Beaumont, or even Matheson or like I'm or Serling. I'm surprised this didn't come from somebody who had a much more broad body of work. Yeah. Like I said, this feels like a Beaumont like type story because it's, it's just, uh, it's really batshit crazy, you know, and, but it's also like playing with a lot of big ideas, you know? Yeah, so it that's, feels like uh, a, it feels kind of a, just a mashup of every writer that we've seen come out of the twilight zone. Yeah. That, it, that's it fits so perfectly into the themes and the narrative that twilight zone has kind of created up to this point. It's, it's really impressive. It's a really great episode. Yeah. And it, it rewards, uh, the rewatch just seeing some of the stuff that goes on. You're like, Oh, okay. And so I had a note here that as each time they did like the stacking up of each other, I'm really hoping that the bagpiper didn't wear the kilt the traditional way. Cause that has been weird. <laughs> uh, cause he was like always the guy like on top. So he had to climb past people or people had to, cl- it was just, I don't know. I don't want to think about that too much. Um, but I like it at one point, uh, the major's like, you know, telling him like, we could try, we could stretch, you know, he's like, everybody's like, everybody to stretch. And I was really wishing he would say articulate at one point, but he didn't say that. And I felt like that would have been like, you know, just a little too close, you know, but, uh, yeah, there, there's just some, there, there's just a lot of good, good ideas in here. And there's, and then obviously the, once you know what's going on, 
there's just these big like tells, you know, and that's the fun part too of of a good story and a good storyteller is that they're waving it in your face the entire time and you don't see it coming, you know? And that's, and that's what I, I guess that's, those are the stories I like most where it's like, Oh, I'm an idiot. It was here this entire time, you know? So, yeah, and it it holds up. And uh, like you said, there are, there are weird things like the action figure, knowing physics and that kind of stuff and feeling pain and all that. But like, um, you're so invested with the story that you don't even call to questions any of those. Yeah. But for the most part, there's not major plot holes in this. And like you said, going back and rewatching it, I, I couldn't see anything that no. would really detract from the storytelling. Yeah. So uh, other things I just wanted to point out that the very last scene, I don't know if you saw what was going on beside the lady working the bell. There was a food vendor there. It was a, a hot potato salesman. I don't know if you saw the side wow. on the little thing. It said hot potato. And I'm like, that's a, th- I did. That's, that was really a thing. Like there was a, someone, a street vendor selling hot potatoes. So there we go. I didn't know that was a thing at the time. Not um, like a loaded potato or anything. No, not just a like hot potato. It's just, here's a, we warm this potato up. Here you go. Yeah, it's a, a Depression Era special. Here's your potato that's now warmed up. Um, here's a pickle and a potato. <laughs> <laughs> that's fancy style. Uh, so I like that um, pretty much any time the bell rings, they all fall down like like toys. Like you Have you heard the thing that in, in Disney with all the Toy Story characters that if someone yells, um, like parents are coming, the actors playing those those toys on the midway have to all fall down like they're like they're toys. <laughs> Uh, no. like, so, so that kind of made me think of that. I also thought the better title for this episode would, would have been toy story. I feel like that would have been more appropriate. Would have given everything away, but I feel it's very appropriate. So yeah, they would flop and kind of fall down like disjointed. Um, and, and at the end when you see them all kind of piled up on each other, obviously, but there was like these, the, again, these things in front of you showing this the entire time. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. I, I really like the title of this episode I know, I do because <laughs> at, at first glance, you have no idea. It just, it seems so bizarre. It just seems so vague. Um, but once you get about halfway into the episode, you start piecing things together and just showing, I, I mean, Serling was a huge fan of a lot of media and, um, just referencing a kind of avant-garde play from, the was what did I say? The twenty one or thirty one? Yeah, I think it was the twenties. Yeah, nineteen twenty one. Like just just the fact they referenced that. Like how many people were even aware of that? You yeah. know, like that's really cool that he made a reference to that in the title of this episode. And the fact that if you did know what that play was, you might have an idea of what's going on here. Minus the whole toy thing. That's true. That's almost like a Frasier level joke, like with his uh the card. The, hey, there you go. That's a callback to last week with like the interstitial cards going on between the scenes. Like there Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So if you were smart enough, maybe you would know what was going on. Uh so uh Lamont Johnson, one of the last things he did, uh JJ Abrams, who uh, is a big fan of Serling and the Twilight Zone. I think I told you this story. I don't know. Well, I don't know why we're recording, but he actually talked to uh, to his widow as an answerling. I think that's her name, and um, she actually let JJ listen to some of the recordings of Rod working his way through his stories. So, uh, and he's really inspired by this, and that's where a lot of like the Cloverfield, like the Ten Cloverfield Lane, all that stuff. He just he loves this type of storytelling in the mystery box. Uh, but before all this, when he was doing Felicity, he brought Lamont Johnson in to direct an episode that had uh, like elements of this and one other Twilight Zone episode. But they brought him in specifically to do an homage to five characters in search of an exit. Uh, so I think that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, and he had to explain to the new act, like young actors, like uh, the difference between acting in like then and now, <laughs> and like, and yeah, like <laughs> so, like he, 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 so the actors felt like they were all being over um, exaggerated in their reactions, but then when they saw the final product and everything edited together, they understood exactly what it was talking about. So there's something to be said for that. So, but that's cool that he, you know, one of his like one of the more like this is one of the more famous episodes of the Twilight Zone. I don't know why I never got to it till now. Like he got to kind of come back and, you know, kind of, you know, people appreciated what he did and he got to kind of take another swing at it. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have too much else about this episode. Um, I was just I was surprised things took me. Uh, I, I wasn't prepared for this episode <laughs> where it was going to go. <laughs> and it, it honestly uh, caught me off guard at the end. Yeah. So, yeah, two things uh, because we mentioned uh, Buck Houghton's daughter. Uh she was super nervous before uh, filming, so she was like just anxious as all get out. So uh, Buck had to walk her. He said like he felt close to like three miles like around the different <laughs> sets just to get her tired out enough so she could do her scene. So that you know that's that's a good sign of a good dad. Like you know we're gonna you know just like to walk and talk and listen and just kind of get all that nervous energy out. So I thought that was a nice little story. Um, and then also, uh, supposedly this film was a big inspiration or sorry, this, the show was a big inspiration for the film cube, um, which I mean, you know, completely makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. which if you guys have not seen cube, we've talked about the director, uh, yeah, Vincenzo, uh, Vincenzo Natale, yeah. uh, um, fantastic director does yeah. not get enough credit. Uh, and cube is it's, it, that's, that's a hell of a movie too, where, um, you know, it takes turns that you're not expecting. And it's these, it's these five or six people that wake up in these rooms that are all the same dimensions. Like, you know, like same, like meaning there's a door on the top floor, the walls and, and you could go in and out of them. However, but some rooms are booby trapped and some aren't. And these people kind of all run into each other eventually. And it's like, they're all wearing prison jumpsuits and they all kind of have their story. And it, it's a cool movie. And it's only a, he only needed a set and a half to do the whole film. So it's another one of those things, again, smart uh, writing and, um, you know, very low budget, but very effective. And I, I think cube's awesome. So if you guys have not seen that movie, please watch it. Cause I don't want to ruin any of the, the, the interesting character beats in that film. Yeah. And, uh, if you haven't seen it, it is on shutter right now. Um, if you are a subscriber to that, uh, on, on Amazon or on the shutter app, it is on there. So go check it out. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I guess that's all I got here. So, uh, we're going to read the twist. I think you and I are going to kind of end up on the, the same, same thing here. I'm calling it. I think we're going to have the same number. Yeah, I think so. Right, I'm giving this a one. No, I'm joking. I'm giving this a five. Uh, <laughs> you, you got me for a second there. <laughs> I got really nervous. One bead of sweat just poured down my forehead. I was like, what? Uh, a single tear from your wooden face that now you're yeah. all sitting here the entire time. Uh, no, it's a five. They, they, how can it not be a five? Because uh, you know, I did not know. Like the, this is one of those twists that is just like, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous and it fits and it's, it's been there the entire time. So even though I feel like these are people like to think the twilight zone is nothing but like this sudden twist, but this is one that is earned and it's just awesome. So give it a five. Yeah. I'm all, I'm also going to give it a five. Um, I've seen a lot of people kind of criticize the end of this episode, just not fitting with the, the rest of the narrative of the episode. Um, I, I don't really see that. I think it makes sense. 
uh, obviously the way I was taking it as a metaphor for characters in the writing process and everything, having it end up to be a doll doesn't really fit with that. But like I said, I think it makes it more accessible for everyone to understand because everyone has an imagination. Everyone, um, everyone remembers a kid and giving stories to their GI Joes or their Barbies or whatever you played with as a child. Um, so I, I, I think the twist was really smart in that aspect of opening it up for everybody to really interpret it. And, um, yeah, it caught me off guard. Like I said, I was not prepared for where this episode was going to eventually take us. Yeah, uh, it's great. So, um, you know, I think I was talking about previously where I was going to have some hard times maybe with some of, uh, where I placed episodes in the season, eh, you know, what's in my hand, this one, this one's going to, you know, it's going to be in contention at the end of the season. So uh, awesome episode. Uh, I'm glad it was a, it was a good, wonderful first time watch, even though I know I had heard of it before. And so somehow all these years of knowing the, the title and knowing it was famous, I did not know the ending, which is that's surprising to me. So, yeah. Yeah. And this episode, like I said, just flies by too. Like I could have sworn I was maybe 10 minutes into the episode when it ended. Yeah. So like that, that's saying something for a, uh, a 25 minute episode shot in basically one location yeah. with it, very limited actors. It's, it's almost and, literally a bottle episode. It's almost literally, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a bucket <laughs> episode. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's really impressive what he does. And like I said, I, I can't speak highly enough of Lamont Johnson for what he did mm-hmm. with the lighting in this, as we mentioned, uh, just some of the angles he takes with the characters and just making this visually interesting with literally nothing but characters. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that's going to do it for our talk for five characters in search of an exit. So we're going to be two guys in search of getting out of this episode. Uh, so, Kevin, how can people find us? You can find us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and if you want to email us or leave us voicemails, you can email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com. And then also we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, anywhere you can find podcasts, we are there. And it would really help us out. Uh, It seems like most people are getting us off of iTunes. So if you head over there, drop us a five-star review, it would definitely help us out. Yeah, absolutely. So next episode, A Quality of Mercy. Kind of already said this is a war episode. Uh, Yeah. Um, So let me just go ahead and and butcher my way through uh, Sterling's description here. Uh, Next week, Mr. Dean Stockwell makes his journey into the Twilight Zone, playing the role of a platoon lieutenant on Corridor during the last few hours of World War II. What happens to him provides the basis for a weird and yet, we think, haunting excursion into the shadow land of imagination. On The Twilight Zone next week, Mr. Dean Stockwell stars in The Quality of Mercy. There you go. So, uh, Dean Stockwell. Like, we'll have some, some fun things to talk about him. I will anyway. I don't know how much uh, uh, Kevin kn- knows about Mr. Stockwell, but it'll be fun. Well, uh, he's in one of my favorite movies of all time, Blue Velvet, <laughs> that we <laughs> use in the uh, intro of the show. I, so, I knew you were yeah, going to mention I, that. It's that movie I haven't seen yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I know. It's bad. But we'll, there's, other, there's other Dean Stockwell facts we'll get to. Uh, Dean facts yeah. next week. Let's talk about some Dune. You know, there's... Yeah. there's it'll be fun yeah so yeah uh that's gonna do it for us this week and again uh have a safe week uh and don't get stuck with a bagpipe like don't just don't end up in a tiny room with people on a bagpipe yeah i i didn't really learn anything from this episode so i i don't know we'll see you guys next week
because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. You're wasting your time, you know that, don't you? You're an idiot. <laughs>